views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. It is pleasant to me to observe, Watson, that you have so far grasped this truth, that in these little records of our cases which you have been good enough to draw up, and I am bound to say, occasionally embellished, that you have given prominence not so much to the many cause, celebre, and sensational trials in which I have figured, but rather to those incidents which have given room for those faculties of deduction and logical synthesis, which I have made my special province in attempting to put colour and life into each of your statements, instead of confining yourself to placing upon a record that severe reasoning from cause to effect, which is really the only notable feature about the thing. You are always in a disputatious mood when you choose that pipe. It seems to me that I've done you full justice in the matter. No, 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 no. It is not selfishness and conceit. If I claim full justice for my art, it is because crime is common. Logic is rare. Therefore, it is upon logic rather than upon crime that you should dwell. You have degraded what should have been a course of lectures into a series of tales. Really, Holmes, I hardly think my poor scribblings deserve that. They have, after all, made your name a household word. Welcome to the show today, our first show in March of 2008, 519-661-3600 is the open line number you can call to join in on the conversation if you like. Today on the show, some of the subjects we'll be talking about. Uh, Again, a little bit more on human rights commissions and the argument that hatred kills and therefore we need human rights commissions. Paying for health care, not really a Canadian trend, but maybe it's something that may come up soon in the future. Perhaps a little more on John Tory, and of course we also have an interesting announcement to make in a little moment, in a few moments about the show. But first I want to start off with something quite uh, perhaps esoteric. Um, basically elementary symbolic and representative, and I, I was actually... Uh, sort of, you know, inspired to do this subject because of an article that appeared in the London Free Press on March 1st, written by Ian Gillespie, which caught my attention, perhaps for reasons different than Mr. Gillespie wrote them, but nevertheless, the the article is interesting in and of, of its own accord. And the, the headline read, Real Facts Are Elementary, Really. And here's what Gillespie writes, quote, According to a recent poll commissioned by the British cable channel UK TV Gold, 58% of UK respondents believe that Sherlock Holmes was a real person. The survey also found that 65% of Britons believe that King Arthur actually existed. And, he, of course, he didn't. 51% think that Robin Hood was real. And, again, that is not true. And this is one that I thought was interesting. 47% believe Eleanor Rigby, the one from the Beatles song, you know, actually existed. And then on the other hand, 
you get the reverse of this, nearly a quarter of those polled said that Winston Churchill, arguably Britain's most pri- famous prime minister, was make-believe. Gillespie offers the following conclusions to these findings. Although this was a British poll, he says, I think it's safe to assume the results would be similar in Canada. And we can safely conclude three things. First, history teachers are very depressed. (laughs) Second, people are idiots. And third, we pay closer attention to pop culture than we do to history. End quote. Now, it's Gillespie's third conclusion that really caught my attention because it was sort of another way of expressing one of the many themes that this very show, Just Right, is sort of based on. But before I elaborate, let's hear where Ian Gillespie goes with his own spin and how he has some fun with it. And here's what he says, quote, Let's face it, the main, peop- the main reason sorry, a lot of people think Sherlock Holmes was real is because there have been so many movies about him. And maybe since a lot of those great old movies, especially the ones starring Basil Rathbone, are black and white, people assume they're real because everyone knows nothing was in color until about 1950. Not sure I follow the logic on that, but okay. Tarzan, for instance, isn't real, writes Gillespie. He was played by actor and Olympic swimmer Johnny Weismuller. His chimpanzee, Cheetah, however, was portrayed by an actual chimpanzee named Cheetah. Take the Three Stooges. They were fake, right? Except for the fact Moe was played by Moe, short for Moses, Howard. Larry was played by Larry Fine. And Curly was played by Jerome Curly Howard. And for the record, Sir Walter Raleigh, Cleopatra, Mahatma Gandhi, and Charles Dickens were all real, although they were all among the top ten historical figures that the survey respondents thought were fictional. Of course, he concludes, all this might be explained by the fact that 77% of the survey respondents said they don't read history books. Really, end quote. And, of course, one other author he left out was Arthur Conan Doyle himself, who wrote Sherlock Holmes and also known for the Lost World uh, books that spawned so many television series and movies that are still uh, being put out over and over again. I must have about three or four different versions of the Lost World. But, uh, you know, personally, the only actor who could ever convince me that Sherlock Holmes was real was uh, the late Jeremy Brett, who portrayed the character in the BBC's adaptation Uh, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. That was the clip you heard at the opening of the show. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, how many people, you know, believe in some sense that Captain Kirk or the Starship Enterprise is real? Or how many people really relate, even though they're very unreal, to the Simpsons, you know, who probably represent the cultural thinking of more people than we might care to admit, whether, you know, funny or not. And I think this leads me to my point about you know reality versus fantasy and mythology. Uh, you know, the age of myths and legends didn't end with the Greeks and the Spartans or the Romans. They continue to be created to this very day, and they serve the same function today as they did, I think, in uh, civilizations past. Some myths and legends were uh, created just out of thin air, purely fictional in every factual respect, but very real in their symbolism and therefore they express some sort of cultural value or moral lesson, you know, that might that would be contained in them, and that's what people take with them. That Those are the things that they carry with them. It's those ideas that survive. It's more um, not so much the people and the events, but the ideas. And, you know, many legends were actually based 
on real characters, people who actually existed, though even in the retelling of their stories, the myth surrounding the fact often gets taken as the fact itself. And this certainly applies to a lot of religious stories and customs, especially when you add, add you know, mystical beliefs and toss them into the mix. And uh, you can be talking about anything from Santa Claus to the Tooth Fairy, the kids, you know, and even interpretations. It's interesting if you compare, for example, the historical ter- interpretation versus the religion one of, of, you know, you've heard the story about Christ spending 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. Well, the religious story takes that rather literally. Uh, if you look at what historians write about it, I learned from some, some of the references I checked that, for example, the term 40 days and 40 nights was sort of like saying uh, a month of Sundays. It was an expression of the time. And it just basically meant you went out in the desert for a while. You didn't literally go out there for 40 days and 40 nights, but so many people literally, literally take it literally again, you know, and, and that's how they interpret it. But historians look at it a little bit differently. It's not, uh, you know, surprising, therefore, that we should find uh, biblical references, the use of mythology, Greek, Roman, uh, Shakespeare. In fact, uh, some of the references I've had uh, will tell me that Shakespeare was one of six or seven contributors to the rewriting of the King James Version of the Bible, which may, in fact, account for all the, the phrases that come from it, why they are so almost Shakespearean. And, of course, the importance of theater and spectacle. Um, you know, from you could get these out of all kinds of shows. Uh, Star Trek is a classic that probably employs every one of these techniques. When Gene Roddenberry put together Andromeda and Star Trek and The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, they're all basically based on a Star Trek mythos, which which is which has a, a real meaning to a lot of people, even if you do see some of those kooky people who you will see at the Star Trek conventions. But I guess the main point to be made here with respect to uh, the whole thing of confusing fact with reality is that, yeah, let's hope that somebody keeps track of what the reality is because sometimes we need to be pulled back to it. But really what survives in the long term are the ideas and the philosophies behind them, whether you're talking about Jason and the Argonauts or, the, or what the ancient gods represented. They all represented very real forces in the world. And I think that's why really uh, when, you, when, you know, when Gillespie says we pay closer attention to pop culture than to history, I think it's a little bit of a mix of both because history is always reinterpreted and it's and it's very symbolic and often many of the new shows we see and the new uh, books you might read are merely the same story told over and over again. Didn't somebody once say there's only like about a dozen stories out there but you can tell them a hundred different ways. So that's all I really wanted to say on that subject. Now, when we return, I've got an announcement to make after this that I think regular listeners of just right we'll find interesting we'll be back right after this mr fowler and miss rue castle were married by special license and he now holds a government position on the island of mauritius miss hunter is now head of a private school in walsall where i gather she has met with considerable success Hey, Holmes, your verdict. An admirable account, Watson. Oh, you don't think I've put too much color and life into it? Oh, my dear friend, I humbly defer such considerations to your excellent literary judgment. 
He said, live every day as if it were the last day of your life, and sooner or later you'll be right. <laughs> and that's what we are here, just right, and we figure sooner or later you'll be right. Welcome back, 519-661-3600 to call in if you'd like to comment on anything. But we now interrupt our regular programming to bring you the following unpaid, non-commercial telecast about Just Right on CHRW Radio 94.9 FM. Now, of course, I've been doing this show now since about April of last year, and we've been broadcasting live weekly between 11 and noon here from the studios of CHRW Radio and uh, located on the campus of the University of Western Ontario. This uh, this is sort of Thursday's segment of CHRW's feedback series. It's called Just Right. It's also streamed live on the web at uh, www.chrwradio.com and archived there for one week following the original broadcast. And now I'd like to announce, available in retrospect, online, you can now, I've set up a page, uh, www.justrightmedia.org where you can still catch up on some of the shows that you might have missed. And I have to tell you about uh, what's on this page, because right now there's really nothing on the website except some programming itself. This is a very bare, skeleton website as of today's broadcast. Now here's what you'd find today if you were to visit the site. There's only one page, okay, just a single page, just white background with some links on it. And at the top of the page, You'll see Just Right, hosted by Robert Metz, and right below it is a purple bar on which will appear the phone number that you can call and the hours during which to call that you can reach our live broadcast and to participate in the show. That's the number I had just called out earlier here, 661-3600. Under that, you'll find three links under the heading 2008 Current CHRW Programming. Now, the first link will take you to CHRW Live, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so it includes the station's entire programming. So it's not just a just right link, that first one. depends on, except on Thursdays, Eastern Standard, uh, which will be Eastern Daylight next week, I understand, uh, on Thursdays between 11 and 12. That's the only time that link will be just right. But the second link will activate CHRW's archived copy of Just Right's latest show, which is kept there for one week following the original broadcast, and after which it's replaced by the next broadcast, and so on. And the third link you'll see there will let you email us directly at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Now, please don't expect any instant responses, but I can guarantee you all emails will be read, and unless you specifically state otherwise, uh, we'll, we'll read them and respond to them on the air. Unless you tell us, please don't do that, or you just want to make a comment, you know, that won't get to the air. And if you're commenting on a particular show or topic, if it's possible, please uh, refer to the particular show or the date or the number if you can, because that you can find on, on the site. Now, following those three links, you'll see two headings, Just Write a 2008 Archive and Just Write... 2007 archive, where all you'll see is just links for the broadcasts and the original broadcast date. So basically all you see there is these links uh, with the date, a number, and uh, that's it. Nothing fancy. Not even any indexes or program descriptions available as yet. This is uh, strictly a skeleton website, but fully functional and has every show available on it, amazingly. Now, of course, 
as time progresses, we'll add indexes and subject headings, evolve a more identifiable look, and add little features and extras that, you know, maybe I might put on some photos. Uh, believe it or not, there's actually on YouTube, one of the shows is there. Uh, when I had uh, guest Paul McKeever on there, you can check that out, and they actually filmed the whole show, the interview that I did with him. And, uh, of course, uh, all of the archive shows I checked, uh, they run very well, even on a slow dial-up. I, I t tested it out on one of my computers. It is on a slow dial-up, and they start running beautifully. So don't think you have to have high speed to access them. We're talking, of course, audio files. So it's just like listening to the radio. Now, you know, I had no idea of, just to give you an idea of what you might be getting into, I know there's a lot of you just discovered the show very recently, as did Caller Dave last week on the show who called in. And uh, to be honest, I had no idea of what the show might be about when we started it back in April of last year. And now, after looking at what I've done for a year, generally I can sort of identify what it's about now. Generally, the show has evolved into, I guess, a news magazine format featuring other media, news and opinions, and, of course, contrasted against my own personal views on areas of, and this is generally the broadest areas, philosophy, science and technology, current events, history, world affairs, economics, politics, some comedy, drama, and some television entertainment, uh, which I haven't done for a little while, especially in light of the writer's strike, but we'll get back to that later. Now, occasionally, I'll go off on a complete tangent where I might, you know, feature a single theme, personality, or, or a subject, or yes, even have a guest on the show from time to time. And although I, you know, only produce one show a week, I'm quite surprised by the number and, quali and quality of guests who've already appeared on the show. And I've got to confess, interviewing is not particularly my forte, so it's something I know I've still got to work on, but... Some of the guinea pigs, I mean guests uh, who, who've had the, <laughs> the nerve to appear on the show, have included uh, Tom Harris of the National Resources Stewardship Project on global warming. Um, he was my first guest way back, uh, oh, gee, that must have been just in the first four or five shows. No, again, I don't have all these indexed. By the way, I do know that the online version of that particular show had a technical problem, unfortunately, and Tom Harris's voice was missing from a portion of it. It started coming back near the end. I know the on-air broadcast was fine, but the archive uh, copy had a technical problem, although parts of that show are there. It's the only one we've ever had problems with that I'm aware of uh, you know, since we started the show. Uh, I've had on the show John Thompson of the McKenzie Institute who talked about international terrorism and what was going on in the Mideast. Had on Jim Montag from Great Lakes Guns and Knives and a past candidate for London Mayor who was here on uh, for an hour on the subject of gun control and gun registration. Had a friend of mine named Paul Lambert, a former Londoner now living in Sweden, who came in on the show while he was here on a week or two vacation on the subject of what life in Sweden you know, how it really differs from what most people think and, and, you know, their expectations, especially from a Canadian perspective. Had, of course, on the show Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, on the subject of how governments really should rationally approach issues. Also had guest Arthur Mayor, also a past candidate for London Mayor, but in addition to that is also sergeant in the Canadian Armed Forces who had just returned from Afghanistan the week before appearing on the show on the subject of Canada in Afghanistan, and again offered a viewpoint quite in contrast to what most of us are being told, you know, in so much of the media. Anthony Verbreckmos of Indy Media Independent News here at the campus 
on protesting wars. That was a bit of fun there. And during the Ontario election, we had on Steve Holmes, NDP candidate for London North Centre during that election on the subject of why we should vote NDP. And thinking back, boy, I, I sure gave that poor guy a hard time, but good for him. You know, he stuck it out and, well, he lost the election anyway, but that doesn't matter. And uh, just recently, one of my first guests this year was Karen Selleck, the outspoken Belleville lawyer whose editorials appear regularly in the National Post on the subject of Mark Emery's pending extradition to the U.S. on charges of selling pot seeds on the Internet, which I'm not really sure what the status of that is as of today. So that's something I still have to follow up on. But interestingly, here's, here's just a, this is like a list of some of the subjects that we have covered on the show so far, basically. I remember starting off the show with a description of what I mean by left and right. Uh, did that a couple of times, um, because I don't mean what a lot of people think traditionally right means. Talked about feminism versus freedom of speech. We talked about pornography, gas prices, taxes, good and bad, global warming. That comes up fairly you know, fairly frequently. Environmental activism, of course. Racism and prejudice. The monarchy. Global terrorism and the wars abroad. Health care rationing. Socialism and fascism. Even gave my theories on what I thought the show Lost is all about. Some of my friends are challenging me and telling me that my theory might be breaking down with this latest season, but I haven't seen it yet, so I can't comment on that yet. Uh, I'm sticking by it. We'll tell you about what, what I think after I get a chance to see that. I do have them on my DVD collection. Talked about general things about human behavior, and we talked about television technology and TV programming and TV shows. We've talked about junk science, and we talk about real science and technology as well. Gave quite a bit of time to robotics, which uh, is a theme you'll see sort of repeated a couple of times throughout the show because I think that's the coming trend, and we're hearing more and more about the the part robots are going to play in our lives in this century. I think that's going to be the quantum technological leap of the 21st century where computers and the like were of the 20th. We talked about gun control. We talked about the right to self-defense, of course, drug laws, marijuana laws, um, photo radar, speed limits. Even talked about World War Three. Yeah, you haven't heard about that one. Uh, faith versus reason, government arts funding, uh, did a whole segment on why it's important to understand that Hitler was a socialist. And we talked about, again, TV shows, Star Trek. We even talked about the new voyages where no man has gone before. We asked the question, why study war? And faith funding, education, creationism. And, you know, who would talk about, you know, sex, politics, and religion, but maybe me on my show. We talked about God, religion, morality, the state and religion. We've talked about Ontario politics, of course, including the election, municipal politics in London for the most part, because that's where the show originates. We've talked about stress on the job. Did a whole show on the subject of money. Is money the root of all evil? And in that show we also discussed inflation, and we've discussed themes of justice, crime and punishment. Did a special show, and I happen to know this one's November 1st show, if you want to check that one out. That's the one that I dedicated the whole show to uh, the situation with Mark Emery, and uh, Mark Emery's going, I called it Citizen Mark Goes to Washington, where I basically reviewed Mark's history here in the city as well, and, and the kind of issues he was into before he decided to sell marijuana seeds. Talked about Remembrance Day and what people usually forget about it. And, of course, I asked the question, philosophy, who needs it and why we need it. 
emphasize the difference between freedom and anarchy, which is so often confused. Did a lot of TV show reviews. Hollywood writer strike we talked about. Talked about tasers and use. Car safety fascism and airbags. There's something I still haven't got a response on, on, on just how safe or unsafe airbags can be. Talked about Christmas as the icon of commercialism. And, of course, then we got into some things on news editorials that I just think are, like, just wrong and featured some of them. Talking about religion and virtue, uh, the fiction of public ownership. Even talked about light bulbs, you know, part of the environmental movement and what the whole issue of light bulbs is. And that one's going to come back on us a few more times. Did a show on abortion and abortion law is still a big issue. Human rights commissions, of course. Freedom of speech. Afro-centered schools. Bright ideas from City Hall. We talked about the Lord's Prayer. We talked about apocalyptic thinking and the end of the world Malthusians. We talked about making downtown London pedestrian last week. Even gave a whole philosophic history and perspective on the subject of love, which was done on the Valentine's Day show. And we talked about official bilingualism and the criminalization of language. That's just touching the tip of the iceberg, some of the things that we hit, just in, you know, not even the past year or so on, on our weekly show. Now, if you add to that, well over 300 audio clips featuring, you know, various comics, outtakes from various TV shows, and excerpts from original interviews and talk shows and news broadcasts that are sprinkled throughout the show, and you've got Just Right, and that's Basically, this show, available live right here on CHRW every, every and each Thursday from 11 a.m. to noon. So, you know, if you've been listening to the show, just gotten, you know, just found out we're here, and you're going, wait a minute, I don't remember hearing you talk about all those areas. Well, you just might have missed them, and uh, now you have a place to go where you can catch up. You know, often on the show, too, I'll make a reference to some subject that I've already discussed without, again, going into the details. And I realize that leaves some people wondering what my larger argument might be or what context it would, uh, you know, properly apply to. So now we've got a place to go. And that, again, is www.justrightmedia.org. So check it out. Bookmark it. I think you'll find it a fun place to go. So that's it for this. Uh, This has been an unpaid, non-commercial telecast. And we now return you to our regular programming when we return right after this non-commercial break. This is better than the first job I had. I actually, I actually did go to uh, college. All right. Thanks again. Yeah. <laughs> Went to college. I studied radio and television broadcasting. Anybody here do that? <laughs> Welcome to your future. Be safe. We'll get an X-ray. With the X-ray. He's uh, <laughs> from Canada. This whole thing for healthcare thing uh, is new to him. No, Why don't you go get a couple sodas, eh? <laughs> healthcare is kind of new to Canadians, isn't it? Saw uh, an article in the London Free Press uh, in on March first by George Clark. And it was entitled, Sure, We Wait, But the MRI Cost Me $3. And I just, I have to tell you folks, this article kind of outraged me. And I had to understand, I had to ask myself, why does this article bug me so much? What, what is it 
you know, that, that is about this article that I just feel is wrong. And I really think it has something to do with, I think, Canadians, you know, we, we always criticize Americans for their attitudes, but I think we have a bit of a smug attitude, especially when it comes to our free health care system, and I don't know that it's all that earned or all that, uh, you know, valid of one. But here's what George Clark said in, uh, you know, in his article. And I think, uh, you know, Clark basically dismisses the seriousness of the wait times that some people face, and uh, especially for people who can't afford to wait. But nevertheless, he writes that uh, the wait was worth it. For several months, I have been waiting for an MRI, writes Clark. Figures released by the McGuinty government last April showed wait times in London had dropped from 156 days on average to 154. Now, <laughs> is that something to brag about? I consider that standing still. You could have changed that by just changing the criteria of the whole uh, way to collect statistics, but uh, hardly significant. But, but writes uh, uh, Clark, I waited longer, around seven months, but then again, my need was less. Now, you know, the first question comes into my mind is less than whose? And why should one's need have to be relative to other people's needs? What's that got to do with your right to access, you know, timely health care? Clark goes on to discuss the physical experience of having an MRI, in, in his case for a disc problem. And he sort of described it as a pleasant experience that lasted about a half hour and, and ended with a, quote, cheerful MRI technician, end quote, wishing him a good evening. But then he writes, and I quote, the total cost to me for the treatment was a $3 parking fee. Less than 15 minutes later, I was home. Some of my American friends, here we come bringing up America again, ask how we put up with the wait times. Again, my problem wasn't critical and the total bill was $3. The care and treatment were excellent. The Victoria campus of LHSC is a modern, reassuring complex. And as you walk out the door to the covered walkway, you want to say thank you to somebody, says Clark. End, end quote. Now, I don't know, I think the fact that Clark could have had the exact same experience without having to have any wait time doesn't seem to cross his mind, doesn't even appear to cross his mind. He seems to be a satisfied customer with only a seven-month waiting list. But clearly, you know, what Clark is celebrating in his article is not a healthcare system that ensures against catastrophic loss in the event of serious injury or serious illness. But, but instead, a healthcare system that offers totally free services, even for non-life-threatening or serious injuries, you know, and which would not produce the catastrophic loss for the patient if they paid directly themselves. But, you know, there is a price being paid. Somewhere in the system, some poor victim is unjustly and unnecessarily experiencing the pain and suffering caused by the resources being directed to his comfortable and painless experience in obtaining of all things even, geez, I couldn't believe it, an MRI. You know, it sounds a bit third-worldish, if you ask me, not to be able to walk in off the street, so to speak, just for an X-ray or an MRI. It's kind of an example of how, why government likes to meddle in the marketplace. They, they want you to see their visible hand, but they totally ignore the invisible hand of the marketplace. Now, remember, we're not talking about treating any possible disease or complications that might be diagnosed or revealed by the MRI. The waiting list for the actual treatment might be another story entirely if such treatment is needed. And of course, uh, you know, at, at the bottom of this is the whole silly thing of the single-payer concept of government-provided health care. 
and I think it's flawed both in theory and practice, you know, the idea of having free health care for all conditions, regardless of urgency or regardless of need, is not what any viable actuarially sound insurance system is capable of offering or even of sustaining. It's just not possible. So, you know, I don't know that this is something to be proud of or to brag about. It's just amazing. Now, I thought I reacted rather strongly, and then sure enough, I just clipped this morning out of the free press a March 4th letter to the editor by uh, writer Robert McDonald from AIR, who, boy, he he uh, he said it a lot stronger than I did. And he writes, and the headline reads, uh, Clark's MRI column, A Bunch of Drivel. And he writes, quote, I cannot believe a rational person can write such drivel. The fascist system that characterizes the Canadian medical system is a travesty. So, George Clark thinks that waiting seven months for an MRI is okay because his problem wasn't necessarily severe. Give me a break. If a doctor had decided an MRI is required, then you must have a significant problem because MRIs are rationed in our system. Also, this statement that the MRI, quote, only costs $3, the parking fee, is foolish beyond belief. No wonder Canadians keep getting subjected to first-class medical treatment with third-world wait times when so-called intelligent people think like this, end quote. That's from Robert McDonald in the Free Press. i got to tell you, he's one of the few writers I've seen who even understands the problem. He understands that we're talking about a rationing system and that that's what health care is once you let the state run it and, insist, and a state that insists that you can't have any other options of payment. Now, you get into, of course, the problems that are inherent in a health care system, and people are always looking for solutions, but they don't want to do the real solution, which means you know pay your own way as much as you can, because that's the one thing they're trying. Everybody's trying to avoid. That's why we run to politics. We always run to politics for solutions that would be unethical and unrealistic in the real world. And I hate to say that, but that's true of all social spending. And uh, to give you an idea how silly it can get, another letter to the editor, Free Press, February 21st. I kept this one for a while. Mark Forte. Prevention, best cure for health care costs. Now, we hear this a lot. He's not the only guy saying this. but And here's the argument. You hear it like this, and he's pretty well ca- encapsulated. Quote, the health care system in Ontario is a reactive system that practices secondary prevention. The bulk of the health care budget is invested in hospital costs to help people after they get sick. Gee, that's a big admission there, eh? If the government offered broader coverage, people would not have to be hospitalized, thereby incurring large costs. If we practiced prevention in the first place rather than waiting until an individual required hospitalization, we could save big hospital dollars and a plethora of lives in the process. It's not rocket science, end quote, writes Mark Forte. Well, it seems to me... I don't don't think this writer's thought the whole thing through. Although he thinks he knows what the government, you know, what the government would spend preventative health care money on, and that's something you could never value the, you know, objectively value or measure in any sort of way. But he's thinking like prescription drugs and life-saving medications. But, you know, I've watched in reality when governments spend money on prevention, it means government-paid propaganda advertising. That's generally what you get. Don't smoke, don't eat, don't eat fatty foods, don't go in the sun, be sure to get enough sunlight, eat your vegetables, don't do drugs, etc., 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 etc. Because, of course, that's, what they, that's all they can do. And 
as to the contention that preventative medicine will save hospitalization dollars, I don't think any amount of prevention will stop us from eventually aging, our bodies breaking down, communicable diseases overcoming people, ironically, which is a condition prevalent in our hospitals, having accidents or becoming a victim of a crime or otherwise eventually needing a reactive system capable of dealing with true pain, suffering, and chronic need for medical attention. To me, that's what it's all about. That's the thing we're all really terrified of, isn't it? That's what our social safety net was supposed to be all about. The rest is an individual responsibility, and it is to that responsibility that government prevention advertising is always directed. You know, so... so it, it just goes to show you that uh, even if they're going to spend this money, how are they going to prevent anything? They have to talk you into doing the right things for your health, to eat right, etc. Uh, and in fact, we've dealt with this issue again, which you can now check on our website uh, in the past. And we had some clips by Dr. Dorman who talked a, a lot about what preventative health care is really all about. And it is an individual responsibility. That's all I want to say on that subject. But another thing that came up last week... Um, Tory, John Tory, I talked about the Ontario Progressive Conservative Leadership Convention held here in London uh, the weekend before. And I challenged some of the prevailing commentary on John Tory's electoral future, or failure, rather, during uh, the last provincial election. And my argument basically was that Tory's no Tory, and that that, more than anything else, in, you know, including the faith funding issue, was really the cause of his problems. Now, Paul Nesbitt Larking, chair of the political science department here in University College, apparently disagrees with me. Found his uh, March 1st London Free Press editorial kind of interesting. And uh, it was headed Ontario Tories Reject Tory Syndrome. And Nesbitt Larking argued that, quote, John Tory remains the right person to lead the provincial conservatives. Quote, in selecting Tory in 2004, the Conservatives opted for a party leader with a wealth of political, business, and volunteer sector experience. Tory's political style was both urbane and humane, marking a sharp and necessary departure from the Harris era. There's that bad word for Tories today, you know, Harris. In the current Ontario political climate of active citizen engagement, Tory remains an outstanding leader while reaffirming his conviction in core conservative principles of law and order, traditional values, lower taxes, and smaller government. John Tory also described how he hopes to welcome new and urban Canadians into the conservative community by supporting multicultural Ontario and through encouragement for women in the political process. On the basis of demonstrable skills and resolve to be a more effective leader, John Tory now needs to take some positive steps by offering the voters a relevant and credible official opposition, concludes Nesbitt Larking. Well, what can I say to that? Uh, you know, Each and every one of his above-mentioned statements, which basically are the meat of his article, um, contains, I think, a fundamental contradiction. John Tory is everything to all people and nothing to no one. Wow. I mean, is that what we want in our leaders these days? And I think it is. I actually do. Uh, here's how I interpret the four points that he just made. Uh, you know, first, uh, that basically Tory's political style is the opposite of Mike Harris. Okay? And here's how I think it. You know, Harris won his elections. Tory lost his. But on the basis of Tory's demonstrable skills, conservatives should, of course, continue to follow Tory. The second point he makes is that Tory is a leader in a system 
where his job is to follow. Isn't that interesting? You know, in the, that's, that's what he's really saying in the current Ontario political climate of active citizen engagement. Tory remains an outstanding leader. This means, you know, I'm going to listen to what my constituents say. If you hear that, that's bull. Okay, they can't. There's no way they could possibly act on the wishes of their constituents. They can act on the wishes, wishes on some of their constituents against others, but they cannot possibly act upon all of them. The abortion issue is a classic. Which way is it going to go? The, the vote's always been 50-50 on that. So how are you going to say you can represent your constituents when they're split right down the middle? And even if it's not a 50-50 deal, if it's 60-40, you know, 70-30, 90-10, doesn't matter. You're still not representing everyone. And you can't pretend that you are. I think that's so often why we our politicians earn our disrespect because they almost don't respect their own opinion. You know, if you can't, if you're going to be a leader, act like a leader. If the public disagrees with you and you think they're wrong, you should be working on changing their mind, not feeding in to something that you regard as their ignorance. You know, that's, it's just it's shameful, I think. And the, and the third point is that Tory's going to talk conservative but act liberal. So what else is new? Yeah, he's going to you know, reaffirm his conviction to core conservative principles, which I think is funny because wasn't, didn't they just say it was a necessary departure to get away from the, the values that Harris espoused? Those were far closer to traditional conservative principles. So how can you do both? You can't. It just means talk conservative, act liberal. So what else is new? Um, and, of course, Tory has demonstrated his great leadership and therefore had to resolve to be a more effective leader. Does that make sense to you? Is that a contradiction or what? You know, on the basis of demonstrable skills and resolve to be a more effective leader, why would you have to make that re resolution to anybody if you already had these demonstrable skills and were an effective leader? Um, <laughs> boy, the contradictions are just amazing. Uh, but so much for, you know, official uh, analysis. Here's another analysis, one that I regard, I think, as a little far more realistic and, and substantive th than the one offered by Nesbitt Larkin. And it just comes from a letter writer to the editor, letter to the editor, March 1st, London Free Press, same day, in fact, that uh, his article appeared. And it's written by Bill Sanderson. And it, the headline says, John Tory's history, that of perennial loser, quote, John Tory's track record is one of failure, and his legacy lives on at the expense of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. This by a man who does not have a seat in the Ontario legislature. A quick glance at his past reveals what might be considered a perennial loser. In 1993, Tory managed federal PC leader Kim Campbell's ill-fated election campaign. The federal Tories were almost wiped out, being reduced to two seats. In 2007... As leader of the Ontario PC Party, he snatched defeat from the jaws of victory with his faith-based education brainchild, leaving Dalton McGuinty with a massive majority win. The PCs won a measly 26 seats. If Tory's still at the helm in 2011, the Ontario PC Party could lose official party status. That would secure Tory status in the annals of Canadian political history. End quote. Oh, boy. And just as I observed last week... You know, regarding the sad faces of the winners at the PC Leadership Convention, you know, the caption in the London Free Press under the photo of John Tory and his wife Barbara Hackett read this. It says, quote, why so glum? Ontario PC leader John Tory and his wife faced the media Sunday in London, the day after the party delegates gave him a lukewarm support. 
And uh, London political scientist Paul Nesbitt-Larking says Tory has all the qualities of an outstanding leader, end quote. Boy, I don't know. Uh, I would venture to say maybe a lukewarm outstanding leader or uh, an outstanding lukewarm leader or a leader outstanding with lukewarm support. I don't know. <laughs> there are so many ways you can describe John Tory that no wonder he's so popular. And if you don't know sarcasm when you hear it. You know, Ayn Rand wrote an obituary for conservatism way back in the 1960s. Conservative parties now, of course, may continue to win some elections from time to time, but today's conservatives are really no different from their liberal counterparts. And even when they are conservatives, I think they're incapable of winning freedom, prosperity, lower taxes, or a better life. They just uh, keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And when something doesn't work, well, they just advocate doing more of it, and that seems to be the conservative way. Well, that's it for those two subjects for now, and when we return, we'll be back with yet another talking about... Uh, I don't even know what the next subject is. I'll have to check it. We'll be back right after this. So I'm feeling quite uh, good. You know, I uh, was just at the doctor having my uh, annual checkup, that I have done every five or six years. And, uh, you know... <laughs> I was in the doctor's office. I was reading this uh, article on uh, obsessive-compulsive behavior, and... Uh, I must have read that thing a hundred times. <laughs> I still don't get it. Now, I haven't quite worked out the math on this one yet. But somewhere along the line, the oppressed minority in this country has become the majority. Well, you know something? If life is a gamble, it's time for the squares to take back the deal. That should be our vig for playing by the rules. Every jerk-off fringe dweller with an axe to grind now has his own star out on the dirty boulevard, and that's fine. Go ahead, knock yourself out. Just don't bust my rice bowl because I've chosen to lead a relatively normal life. You know, we don't have to love one another, folks. We don't even have to like one another. But we do have to respect each other at least as much as we would seem to respect the caribou. Thank you very much. Have a nice evening. Welcome back to the show. We're going to be getting into the issue of how hate kills and human rights commissions. But first, I understand we have a caller on the phone, Marcel. Are you there, How are you Marcel? doing there, Bob? Not too bad, Marcel. How are you doing? Good. I don't, didn't want to interrupt your show for this segment, but I found your first topic very interesting. Oh, the first yes, one. Both. Yes. And all that. And sounds like you've been reading from Joseph Campbell. No, I don't even know of Joseph Campbell. Does he say the basic same kind of things? Oh, definitely. How this is the archetype of all, uh, con uh, you know, historical, archaeological, uh, science, Oh, interesting. And all. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Sorry, I got interrupted there. Okay. Uh, but I, I, you had that question about whether King Arthur was real or Robin well, Hood now was, the answer. Yeah, that was an Ian Gillespie's article, correct. Right, I just got to ask you a question. Sure. Did King Midas exist? Oh, gee, I couldn't tell you. Well, apparently he's been part of every, you know, uh, fairy tale as children. Right. But they did find his uh, grave in Turkey about 25 years ago, King Midas. Uh -huh. uh, the, the inscription was not the man with the golden touch, but it was to do with uh, the golden king. So I was just trying to show how uh, some things we take as myth can actually be real. Well, certainly. And uh, some things that we are 
but, uh, you know, we think is true is actually bogus. Of course, and but you have to be careful to, of, of course, distinguish between the fact and, and I guess what you would say is the significance of the event as well. Uh, and Absolutely. But I just have two comments for you. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get your reaction on them. And uh, the first thing is that um, one man's religion is another man's science, and vice versa. And, uh, and much of science today did come spring from myth, ancient myths ancient knowledge, and I know science was an attempt to dispute all the old myths, but still a lot of the ideas came from ancient myths, and I can give you many examples of that, but uh, the striking thing right now is that uh, we think people that have a religious view as opposed to science view are uh, science view are fanatical. But I find that in the scientific community too, uh, you, you're right. Quite fanatical as well. You will, you will actually. I'm telling you, there's junk science. There's there's a mysticism in science as well. But to speak to your key point, um, you know, it's true that many scientific discoveries were made because somebody started off with the wrong idea. You have to start somewhere. And you start but, with your observations, and sometimes the basic observation is incorrect because you don't understand exactly what you're looking at. Uh, one of the hardest things for people to understand, if you want to look at it in a scientific basis, is, is are the laws of gravity, really. We see it as a force between two objects, but we know now that that's not what it is. That's absolutely right, and that's the point I was going to bring up, because you're talking about junk science versus real science, right? Correct. Well, like Einstein's been one of the greatest minds of the century, mm-hmm. and everybody got on board behind his theories. Now, it seems that gravity is not the strongest uh, force in the universe. They're finding now that electricity and plasma uh, is connecting all the solar systems and galaxies, and there's no such thing as empty space, but it's all dark matter. True. That's, all, that's been known for quite a while. And okay, again, and of Einstein, Einstein was talking about black holes, and because of these newest discoveries with electricity and plasma, they're questioning black holes, and all of a sudden, Stephen Hawking is saying, well, there must, because black hole model doesn't fit anymore, he's saying, well, maybe there's different kinds of black holes. Maybe. And, and like, science seems to, you know, science? play that game as well. Well, no, science, science is always open to, to investigation and reinterpretation. Unlike, if you're really talking about religion, religion is unchangeable. It's, it's, it's frozen. It does not accept new ideas. That's what basically makes it religious. But the point is, the sciences are like a boys' club, and you have to, if you want to get funding, you've got to get on board. And oh, if yeah. you find some skeletons in North America of white people that are 50,000 years old, you're completely, and uh, which they have, by the way, mm-hmm. you're completely discredited. And you won't get funding, the universe, you're like the bad boy. Uh, you know, so science has not been fair in that regard. Okay, Marcel, I'm going to have to leave the subject for now, but thanks for calling. I'm going to speak to that last issue uh, that Marcel just raised. Um, you know, the whole idea, I, I was actually looking into a lot of this, and I know there's a lot of controversy even in science, and when you get back into history and the, and the artifacts that they've dug up, and, uh, and it's almost like getting into the subject of UFOs when you hear some of the interests that are involved. But one thing you'll find is politics exists in every discipline, and I think that's really the problem, whether you're in science and business and anything, you're going to get political interest, which means people wanting to, you know, pull, pull their weight or put, get power that is not exactly earned based on something objective. But um, thanks for calling, Marcel, and uh, I hope uh, we're going to make that a co- the topic in a future show. And we've discussed, in fact, a number of the issues you raised on some of the past shows, so be sure to check out uh, justrightmedia.org. 
Now, just quickly before the show ends, I had one uh, thing I wanted to get at here. Uh, editorial that appeared in the National Post on February 19th. Hatred killed Pamela Wachter, say Bernie Farber, and Len Rudner in their, in their editorial. Both are representatives of the Canadian Jewish Congress, uh, and both are opposed to reducing, opposed to it, reducing the power of Canada's human rights commissions, let alone abolishing them, which is my personal point of view on the subject. And citing hate and bias crime statistics compiled by StatsCan, the writers note that uh, 928 incidents targeting specific groups took place in 2001 and 2, including mischief, assault, and threats. Quote, these are incidents where people feel hate crime charges are legitimate because of the high likelihood the act was motivated by hate, bias, or prejudice. It's not thought crime. There is no opportunity to rally the troops around the banner of free speech. Just broken windows, racist graffiti, desecrated cemeteries, and firebomb schools. It can't be ignored, nor should it be. It's fair to debate the extent to which racist speech can lead to racist action, but that link can neither be positively affirmed nor denied. Free speech is not, and was never intended, to be an absolute. Now, that's what they write. Now, uh, you know, and to support their poorly stated argument, they appeal to this case of Pamela Waketer. Apparently, she went to her office uh, and, uh, sorry, got, got a caller? Okay, a couple minutes left. I know I'm running out of time. Um, and basically, you know, she was killed by some uh, terrorist in, in uh, it wasn't even in Canada here. It was somewhere in the United States. And basically, the rest of the article talked about the lessons of 1938 and swastika scrawled, etc., etc. But here's the real kicker, you know. Uh, Colby Kosh, in his February 20th, 08 National Post editorial, responded to this editorial. And he very significantly revealed, he said, could there be any details they left out with all their talk of swastikas on synagogue walls and white supremacists? One might imagine that Pamela Wachter was murdered by some rampaging neo-Nazi skinhead. But the perpetrator was, in fact, one Navid Azval Haq, whose Pakistani father founded the local Islamic center and who shouted at his victims, I am, an, I am a Muslim American angry at Israel, end quote. And he writes, there is a tendency within the anti-hate community to conjure up Nazi boogeymen whenever human rights commissions are criticized. Farber and Rudner's op-ed in its calculated misrepresentation of Pamela Wachter's demise and its self-glamorizing claptrap about barricades provides an outstandingly shameless example of the practice. The original Nazis, after all, didn't exterminate the Jews of Europe and only then suppress free speech in the press. Hitler had the relevant guarantees in the Weimar Constitution suspended in 1933, just one month into his chancellorship. An expert on hatred ought to have figured out that genocide, far from being prevented by governments and their instruments of control and censorship, almost inevitably takes place under their concealing shadows, end quote. Very poetically expressed and so very true. So uh, I think we're out of time for this week's show. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll certainly be continuing our journey next week when I hope you'll continue to enjoy it and uh, join us here on the show. So until next week. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I'm proud to say uh, I've been sober 11 years 
first 11 years. I, the 12th birthday, I just got hammered. And I've been pounding them back ever since. <laughs>